Hello and welcome to At Home With, a podcast from the residential business at Knight Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with agents from across our business about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Knight Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today, I'm joined by David Peters, head of our residential country business. David and I'll be chatting about the highs and lows of his career, his most exciting property sales, and what it really takes to make it in the world of real estate. David began his career at Knight Frank back in 1998 and has since risen to first become the head of our valuations and consultancy department, and now our country business. With over 30 years experience, David manages a broad spectrum of teams, including leasehold reform, country house consultancy, building surveying, and estate management. So I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. David, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Thank you for having me, Becky. How are you doing today? How's your week been? Very good, actually. Yeah, I know, very good. It's um, uh, the, the weather's good, so that always helps. I've had the dog walk this morning, uh, so feeling fresh. And uh, I'm pleased to say the residential business across the country is performing well. Uh, it's stretched because it's so busy, um, but that's a good problem to have. And over the last few weeks, the UK has moved out of a more stringent and formal lockdown and into a slightly more ambiguous period. Have you noticed that over the last few weeks that the demand for country properties has risen? Has you seen an increase in activity in this market? Yes, absolutely. Um, we, I think we anticipated um, a, a flurry of activity once we came out of lockdown because obviously we had prepared a lot of property ready to launch. Uh, and that was always going to generate some interest. Uh, and we had a good deal of property that was waiting to exchange, um, just waiting for the processes to be released so that they could get on with uh, the transaction. So there was always that expectation that the first two or three weeks would be busy as we as we caught up and, and got underway. Uh, but what I don't think we anticipated is the level of that interest and the fact that it has been sustained now for eight weeks and and counting. And has that demand, that interest, been a lot of people from London and bigger cities wanting to move to the countryside? We've seen a lot of reports in newspapers about people wanting to escape the city to find a more natural, more green lifestyle with more space and more room to kind of stretch their legs a little bit, whereas in the city, if you're working from home, you're a little bit more confined. So have you seen that interest reflected in practice? Yes, definitely. Um, People are coming out. And it's not just London. It is larger cities generally, Um, but definitely out of London into the home counties. I think that was the first area uh, within our business to pick up. Um, And equally, those people have been living in the country during lockdown, I think have fallen in love with it all over again. They've realised quite how special our country is. Uh, and they are bringing forward some of their activity and their plans uh, to you know get get a little bit more land or a, a, a slightly different uh, location for themselves and their family um, in case this happens again um, but there is I, I, I think there is a genuine falling in love with the countryside all over again England is a or The UK, I should say, is a beautiful place. So let's get out and enjoy it. And on a more personal level, how are you finding this transition back to somewhat normality? Are you finding that as a result of things being busy, you're back in the office more, there's an increased demand, you've got less downtime? How are you finding things on a personal level? Uh, Well, it's interesting you put it that way, 
around because actually going into lockdown was unbelievably busy, um, but relatively straightforward because it was perfectly clear what we all had to do. It was a question of making it happen. Um, so it, it happened very quickly uh, and we had um, a vast number of conference calls, as one might imagine, by Zoom or Teams or any of the other varieties, um, probably 10 hours a day on the telephone uh, and then other work alongside. So that was an extremely busy period. What is more difficult is actually how to come out of lockdown. So how many people to bring back from furlough, how many people we're allowed in the office, what our working practices should be, how we should structure our business, because it is it is different. I think the way we will work going forward will be different. Um, but also because of the activity levels, we have possibly, in fact, I'm pretty sure it is, our largest under-offer pipeline ever, which is very exciting in one side of the coin. The other side of the coin means that there is just even more to handle on a day-to-day -day basis. So how does one do that? Do you use the all the negotiators to do all the sales progression or do you uh, use your support staff in the background? But if they're at progressing sales, they can't answer the phone. Um, and therefore, how many people do you need in the office to answer the phones or how do you program the phone? So, you know, there's this massive uh, learning curve on how to behave, how to react, how to move forward in this, what people are calling the new normal. But um, I don't think it is a new normal because it will be evolving for some good time yet. So we start every podcast by talking a little bit about your career in property and how you got into the industry in the first place. So would you mind telling us a little bit about where the impetus to pursue this career path came from? I think I've always been interested in property. My father had his own property business with rental properties and a bit of development. So it's sort of been in the blood. Um, and I went to university specifically to do um, a, a surveying degree. Uh, so it was a very vocational course designed to get me to, to one point, which was to be a, a chartered surveyor. So all of that was sort of destined. I think when I was at university, I had a complete change of heart and wanted to be a teacher instead. Um, but in those days, you got a grant to do one course. So I had to sort of keep going. Um, so I reluctantly fell into surveying at the end, thinking I'd do a couple of years, become qualified um, and then have a, a rain check. By which time, of course, um, I'd got married and uh, we were then having a, a mortgage. And so you, you then do another year or two and, and time goes on. And, and actually, I've ended up absolutely loving it. So no complaints at all. But for me, it was uh, uh, an aim to get into surveying. Then it was almost an aim not to. 
but surveying and the property profession has won me round ultimately. And how did you find those first few years in the industry? You said that you didn't necessarily want to be doing it when you first started out. And so what was that adjustment period like? Were you always with the mentality that you were there for two years, you were just going to ride it out and do it and then move on? Or were you every day trying to find things that you loved and trying to find things to inspire you to keep going? What did that relationship with property look like at the start? And how did you find those early few years of your career? I mean, good question. And of course, looking back at the time, you, you sort of move your way through it without thinking too much about it. You you react. I think looking back, what I so loved about the, the idea, at least, of teaching or liaising with people was the people element. It was making a difference to people and having a rapport with them, a relationship, reacting with them. And surveying was was not quite that sort of approach. It was very much the back room. Uh, all the firms that I, I certainly had interviews with and ended up joining, um, the, the surveyors were up on the top floor of the building uh, in a sort of darkened room with spreadsheets and, and uh, scale rulers and things like that. So it, it was a very different type of approach. The part of the job that I loved was actually getting out. I would struggle, I think, actually to be inside an office 100% of my time. So the, the ability to get out and look at some lovely, for me, what floats my boat is residential property. So to get out and about looking at those residential property for me was uh, the absolute joy. Um, and I, I suppose I have that sort of eye, which means I look at something and I, I'm always wondering how I would have done it. Would I have done it this way or would I have changed it? Would I have knocked that wall down? Would have I extended here? Would I have made it look uh, as these people have. So I was um, I was won over by the product and what I was doing. It was the day-to-day, -day which I wanted more of a rapport. But I think as you go through one's career and you then have teams of people, you work in a team, that became much more rewarding. Uh, and of course, ultimately, I've moved into the agency world, which I have to say, I probably enjoy probably shouldn't say that, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And in 1998, you moved to Knight Frank and this saw your role evolve to include a more international element. So you were traveling all over the world to value properties. And so was this something that made you really want to stay in the industry? Was this something that actually get alongside being a people person, developing that rapport with people? Was this also something that really gave you that buzz and made you absolutely determined to stay in this industry? Oh, absolutely. I have to say, when I joined, or before I joined Knight Frank, let's go back a step, I, I worked for a regional surveying firm with about 10 offices. Um, and it was terrific. Great people, really good firm. And uh, I, we would go off to look at property maybe 20 miles away. And, you know, we'd, we'd consider that a bit of a day trip and that was terribly exciting. So to join Knight Frank and all of a sudden have a national role was quite exciting um, and completely eye-opening. I was learning where all these places were very rapidly. But then uh, part of my role was giving evidence in court um, as an expert witness. Uh, and one of the judges um, in a case, it was a divorce case, 
th this particular couple had their London flat and their country house, and I'd I'd valued both of those. But they also had property overseas, which Paddy Dring uh, had helped me out on. Um, but the judge made it quite clear that they preferred a single expert witness. So, of course, I suddenly started not only being national, but then a European and beyond that, an international value into the Caribbean. So for me, within sort of 18 months of joining Knight Frank, I'd been converted from this parochial um, surveyor in Surrey into someone who was sort of traveling uh, by aircraft to get to their next appointment, uh, which to me was incredibly exciting. Uh, meeting new people, experiencing new things, looking at completely different style of property in different cultures uh, and I just I had to pinch myself I didn't think roles and jobs like that actually existed so yeah great fun. And has that change that variety always looking for something new in your role always constantly looking to evolve and find something different to do is that something that's almost a pivotal part of your personality would you say that you're someone who's quite prone to leaving your comfort zone and finding those new opportunities and always striving to do something a little bit different yeah that's i mean that's really interesting uh, question i'm funny enough i was talking to someone in a, a completely different field not long ago and it was made that their view on me was that I'm a change maker because I like making change. Um, so, yes, I think that is a fundamental part of my uh, makeup, my personality. I, I don't like things staying still because actually I think if you know, if you stay still, you stagnate. Um, and as a business, you can never afford to stay still. You always have to be looking at what comes next, how you could do something either differently, but only do it differently if it's better. But um, the world is changing around us. And unless we, we react to that, we get left behind. So um, I, I think change is fundamentally a part of business, but I would have to agree with you. It's fundamentally a part of my personality. And do you actively enjoy leaving your comfort zone? It almost feels like an antithetical question to ask, but is leaving your comfort zone something that you find yourself doing quite regularly and always pushing yourself and people in your team to do the same? Is it something that you actually think is incredibly valuable? And despite comfort zone being in the name, being a place that's comfortable and that you would naturally want to stay, are you always looking to find a way to get out of that comfort zone? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a, an interesting point about the, the, the comfort zone, because I used to help with the graduate scheme. Uh, and the graduates coming in were always very concerned about where they would end up in the business uh, and whether we would be forcing them down one route when actually their personal passion was in a in a different area. Uh, and my answer to that was always exactly the same. You put a square peg in a square hole, a round peg in a round hole, because actually what is best for you means that you are going to feel most comfortable, you're going to perform to your best, and therefore it's best for the firm. So we work together on it. So part of my answer to your question, sorry, it's a long answer, but um, would be actually to be in your comfort zone is really positive because that is where you're gonna perform best. You know it, you're a specialist. And at Night Frank, we like to think that we are specialists in our field and therefore we 
appoint the right person to do the right job in the right way. And there we get a sort of semicolon. It's not just a comma because you stop, you take breath and you think, yes, but. And the but is that um, there is always a better way to do something. Uh, and therefore, to push people is really important because in challenging them and in targeting them uh, and targets can be really positive. You're actually saying to them, you can do more, you can be better than you are at the moment. Uh, and you're effectively challenging them. You know, if you, if you look at any sort of uh, elite athlete, if they're comfortable in the long jump doing an up, I wouldn't know how far they can jump, but sort of two meters, you know, and you say you're, you've reached the pinnacle, that's you can stop. They're never going to contest for the medal positions. You always have to be looking at how can I develop further? How can I do this better? How can I jump further in order to, um, you know, really reach the pinnacle of my position? And I think what's so good about Knight Frank is that people have that opportunity. They have the opportunity to use all the resources of the firm, but they also have the opportunity to be innovative uh, and entrepreneurial um, because of the structure that we have. It's, it's a discussion. Uh, and I really enjoy people coming to me and saying, I've had this idea, what do you think? And we'll sit down and work it out. And then if possible, we'll give it a try. Because you only know by going outside your comfort zone, A, whether it works and B, whether that becomes your comfort zone because you're good at it. So it's a bit of both on that. Comfort zone is good, but you're never really going to reach the top of the, you know, the tree or the mountain or whatever expression you want unless you really push yourself. And to take things back to our conversation at the beginning about lockdown, you spoke quite optimistically about it and quite practically. And while it's been difficult and things have been very up and down and un un unpredictable, you did still have that thread of optimism running through what you're saying. And so do you think that understanding and appreciating the value of stepping outside of your comfort zones and doing things that push you and challenge you, do you think that helped you cope with the, the situation that we found ourselves in a couple of months ago? Yes, I think so. I think if you're if you're light on your feet um, and you're prepared to look at something from different angles and listen to different views, you will adapt more quickly and probably more favorably than someone who can only view something in a in a direct line. I mean, no one in the world had gone through this before. I know SARS had um, uh, affected parts of the world uh, previously, but it, it seemed to be relatively well contained and re relatively short uh, lived. You know, this is a pandemic. It's a global experience. We're all going through it, but each in our different ways. So every industry is slightly differently affected. Um, the numbers of staff, obviously, uh, vary from one business to another. So you can't write one rule book and say, this is how to do it. Every business has to react uh, and behave in accordance with the circumstances that they face. So I think to be light on your feet and, and adaptable, um, possibly outside, well, I think we were all outside our comfort zone actually, um, was actually really positive and we learned so much so quickly 
because we were thrown not at the mercy, that may be the wrong expression, but in, you know, I think if you'd have asked anybody before lockdown, do you want two and a half thousand people to work from home? Uh, and, and are you completely confident in the systems and the IT and everything else? We would have, you know, swallowed pretty hard uh, before saying yes. But actually, we didn't get the choice. Uh, and therefore, it was down to some brilliant people in IT to say, right, this is how we're doing it. This is how it's going to work. You know, this is what we can do. This is where the next step should be. And we had to listen. Didn't say yes to everything, but... Um, you know, we listened to what was being put forward and when it was sensible and appropriate and right for the business, we said yes and we did it. So I think we were all learning together, all outside our comfort zone, probably. So uh, it was a it was a it's a very important moment of of learning for everybody. Mm, definitely. And we'll go on to chat about this later in our conversation. But I'd just like to take things back a little bit to talk about your move from the head of the residential evaluations and consultancy department to the head of our country business. So I'd be really interested to find out what the rationale was behind that decision and why you decided to make the move. I, I suppose a leap of faith, really, um, as much as anything. Uh, I, I had run the valuation team and um, I was then asked to look at the other areas of consultancy as well, just to bring them together. Because the issue with consultancy is that they're all relatively small teams doing, with all due respect, relatively small turnover, absolutely vital for the overall firm. So don't you know, misinterpret what I've just said, but individually relatively small, but put them together and they are a phenomenal group of individuals. So we put them together so that they had a, a, a really good, strong voice uh, and a, a good direction. Uh, as so often happens in life, though, the a change in direction occurs as much from external factors as from your own personal initiative. And how it happened with me was that Andy Hay was moving on from being the head of the country business into the uh, head of global residential. And we had appointed someone to take over the country business, uh, who very sadly, um, I think the April before he was taking over, he was taking over in the April and, the, and in the December, he was diagnosed with a brain tumour and sadly uh, died. Uh, so we appointed someone who just had a year um, before they were due to retire as a sort of holding position. Uh, and then Andy and Patrick Ramsey in those days uh, actually sort of sat down and said, we think there is an alternative route that we could be taking. Would you consider it? Um, which to me, coming from a professional angle into the uh, the, the sort of dynamic of sales and transactional activity was fascinating. I, I did question their sanity, I think, uh, initially. Um, but actually, when we looked at it, what we as a firm wanted was someone to hold on uh, to what we had to develop the business, but also to assess the business from a sort of structural and uh, a slightly more scientific basis to bring a little bit more rigor into it because there were inevitably going to be some difficult times ahead as was proven uh, and so uh, I, I took it on and it was most certainly outside my comfort zone because I, I hadn't sold a house in my life as they told me um, 
But, you know, I knew the process. I'd done lots of development. I had my father's company in the background as well. So I had a, you know, complete history of buying and selling and adjusting and whatever. But I also loved people and I loved business. And that combination, actually, of looking at the structure of a business, but also dealing with people is both fascinating and very, very rewarding. Uh, So the last seven or eight years have been absolutely brilliant. I've loved it. And on this podcast, the subject of imposter syndrome comes up quite a lot. And I'm always really keen to ask people about it, to explore their vulnerabilities and find out a little bit more about how work impacts their mental health. And so when you first took on this role, as you said, it was completely different to what you were doing. And while you had the experience of working at Night Frank and having experience of the country business, being its actual head was completely different to what you were doing. So did you have any moments of imposter syndrome or anxiety or worries that you were out of your depth and doing something you didn't necessarily understand in the same way? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's the simple answer. Um, yeah, completely I- imposter syndrome. I mean, I, I had people on the country board who had been in the sales environment for 20, 30 years. So, you know, they knew it inside out. But uh, as I I can't remember who said it now, but, um, you know, many people have. uh, And that is that to be a good leader, you surround yourself with people who are better than you are. Uh, And I was surrounded with people that knew the business inside out. What I could bring to it was possibly playing the, um, the rather naive person and asking the silly questions that actually are the questions that people on the ground were asking but no one in authority had asked for the simple reason that they'd already come to their conclusion 20 years earlier and they were just continuing with the same route so i could ask the silly questions um and i suspect when i wasn't looking there was lots of sniggering behind my back and and pointed fingers um but at the same time i had the authority and the responsibility to ask the questions both silly and sensible um in order to make sure that the business as we were running it was the way that we should be running it and in the way that we should be running it with the people that should be running it and so on. So there was nothing off limits and coming to it with a completely fresh hat was actually, uh, for me, very satisfying because it, for me, it was a blank sheet of paper. I wasn't prejudiced by what had gone before. Obviously, history is an important thing. Uh, and if it's been done right in the past, let's not change it. But at the same time, I was open to change uh, because I, I didn't have that sort of baggage that, that possibly some other people had had. Mm, and I suppose that allows you to take a more holistic and top-line view of things. You can almost step back and see where things are going well and where things need improvement because you're not as embedded in it as someone who's been doing it for 20 years, been on the ground for 20 years. And you spoke there about asking questions and so often people are encouraged at the very start of their career to be inquisitive and ask lots of questions and be almost a bit of a sponge and soak up as much as possible. But do you therefore think it's equally important, no matter what stage of your career you're at, to always be inquisitive and always asking these questions? Yes, I do. Yeah, definitely. There's no such thing as the finished article. So there is always something more that you can you can do a a different way of challenging yourself. 
uh, a different area of your business. I mean, even even now, I mean, the country business was known for country houses. Now, that's a very large house, probably in lots of land in the country. So the first thing or the first way that I looked at it was these are not country houses. These happen to be houses in the country and there is a difference, which means that you don't have to start just with the very expensive. What's wrong with bringing the Knight Frank service and quality and profile and provenance and everything else to every sort of house that we or flat or whatever it is that we come across? We've then looked at different offices trying to drill into um, what is their neighborhood and if actually their neighborhood is predominantly urban and possibly apartments or flats then that is the area that we should be focusing on not being blinkered by saying we only deal with country houses um, so you can you you begin to sort of break it down and then you have different initiatives so we we have uh, a service offering for a, a lower price point and the top end and the very super prime. We look at urban areas separately. We look at farms and estates separately because each of these areas needs a different approach. It needs different individuals. It needs different skill sets. And so we've tried to um, develop individuals to respond and give the best service so that ultimately our clients get the best service from us, they get the best experience, and therefore they're first of all going to come back themselves, but secondly, tell their friends to use us. In terms of, uh, of being varied, testing yourself, uh, I think that's really important. Mm, and I think that's a really important point to note about not treating the whole of the country as a monolith. I think if you said that you manage the Night Frank country business, I think a lot of people would be very quick to say, oh, that's, that's massive houses in Surrey, isn't it? But actually, it's so much more multifaceted than that. And so on that point, how do you go about on a more practical level and I suppose on a personal level too managing such a wide variety of teams across the country we have offices all the way from Scotland to Exeter and so how have you found the experience of managing so many different teams with so many different demands all the way across the country uh, well first of all I love people so um, that uh, that helps I love meeting people love getting alongside them hearing what makes them tick so I try to listen more than I speak it doesn't always work but that's the aim but I think ultimately it's about creating two things. One is the ethos or the culture of what you're trying to do. Uh, and secondly is the team, because you can't possibly do it all on your own. So, you know, just like I said with the country board, you need people around you who are better actually than you are. Uh, all you're doing is sort of steering and allowing them the opportunity. So it is with with running the country business. You know, I've got some regional partners, uh, so they look after their part of the country on a day to day basis because I can't physically be everywhere all the time. Uh, but I do try and get around as much as I can um, in order to meet the people, uh, but to hear from uh, what mum may call the coal face, I suppose, um, what is going on uh, and what they feel about the firm, the market, their own position, how they would like to do things differently. Because in hearing from all the individuals, so you build up a picture of either something which is 
uh, an undercurrent which you need to address or something which is actually a really good idea which has been found by two or three people uh, and so you bring it together you hone it refine it and then you roll it out across the the entire business but we are as the country is changing as society is changing as the economy is changing so we are changing the way we work as well so we you know we administer things uh, differently we as i've already said we look at different sectors of the market um, we're changing our marketing approach we've become much more digital in our focus you know so there uh, and we have sales progressors for certain areas of the market who do nothing but uh, help sales go across the line where they're where they're proving you know to struggle so there's all sorts of different ways we can trial our business we've even got offices now which don't have an office you know so we've got some completely virtual we've got some in office buildings without a high street window um, because we are testing how the market reacts either in different locations or just generally do we need to do things differently and I'm very pleased to say we were doing that before uh, COVID and, and lockdown came along. So we were already practiced in uh, supporting people and providing great service, even when we haven't got a high street presence, you know, in their own town. So um, that that put us in a in a good position to know how to or how better to handle people. And to hone in a little bit more on a specific element of the country business and a particular thing that we focus on, as we speak today, it's the launch of Waterfront View 2020, which is our annual publication dedicated to showcasing the very finest waterfront properties across the UK and the world beyond. So would you mind telling us a little bit about Waterfront View and why it's such an exciting publication and why people should be interested in it? Again, I think it's it's different. It's something that we specialise in. It's something we're really good at and we don't tend to tell people. So that, and it, it came out of the uh, Exeter office uh, initially um, because they deal in the the bulk of the the waterfront, I suppose, along the whole of that sort of South Hams and South North Devon coast, uh, and then into Cornwall. So th they saw it as a, a pitching tool, but the more we found um, that gaining resonance, it was because people loved water. And it's not just coastal, it's also inland, it's rivers, it's lakes. People have an affinity with water. I mean, I do as well. I love it. And there is nothing quite, it's a bit, you know, in the winter, I love sitting down watching the, the open fire, a real fire, and the flames flickering. There's just something entrancing about it. But it's the same when you look at water, you know, the light bouncing off it. It, it's that feeling of rest. It's good for the soul. Um, and people therefore do pay a premium for it. So we felt that to put all of that together, because these properties are so phenom phenomenally beautiful, a lot of them, uh, and the views are so wonderful, uh, we just thought to put that together to showcase what this lifestyle can bring you would be um, a, a terrific step forward and, and so it's it's proven uh, and the team in Exeter have made themselves uh, I would say the number one agency in that whole area 
for particularly waterfront property because people know that is what they're known for and they're very good at it. Uh, so Waterfront View, I, I think, is just the most gorgeous publication. It sits on my coffee table most of the year so that I can uh, remind myself of the lovely photos. Amazing. And we'll make sure to link to Waterfront View in the show notes of this episode so that people can go and check it out for themselves and see how incredible some of these properties are. And while we're on the topic of property, this podcast is called At Home With, so I always like to be a little bit nosy and find out about your home and why you love it so much. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your home and why you decided to buy it? It's an old expression isn't it what you know what are the three things uh, that make the value of a home it's location 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 that's true to a point I think at some point the house has got to come in and it's it's quality and aspect and everything else but ultimately it is the location um so I have my own personal refrain, if you want one from me, is always buy the worst house in the best possible road. So I've always made uh, the play of of buying probably against my wife's better wishes, but I've always bought the worst house in the best road that I could afford. And then over time, we've done something to it. So we've either extended or changed or just remodeled it internally i like modern interiors but i but i love period um exteriors uh, and i love character what i perceive anyway is character and everyone is different uh, in a building so to me where we live now is i mean i love it it's um it's very private uh, it's in the surrey hills uh, i look out over the hills but within, if I walk quickly, 20 minutes, uh, I'm standing under the clock in Guildford High Street. Um, and in 25 minutes, I can walk to the railway station uh, to go up to London. So for me, it's the best of both worlds, which actually is possibly what people are finding coming out of London at the moment. They want the facilities of a town but they want the beauty of the countryside. And for me, personally speaking, I would say this, wouldn't I? But um, where I live is perfect. And to divert the conversation away from property ever so slightly for a minute, something that a lot of people might not know about you and which I'm incredibly interested in is that alongside being the head of our country business, you're also an ordained vicar. And I think this probably links back to the fact that you're a people person, but would you mind telling us about this role and why you decided to take it on amidst what can imagine is already a pretty hectic schedule as head of the country business? Soon after I was married, um, well, you're always told don't take on anything when you're when you're recently married. Settle yourselves first. Well, that was an that was my first error, I think. <laughs> Within six months, we were running a youth group at the church we were going to. Um, and that was pretty full on, taking them away, doing things every week and midweek and, and so on. But it was it was great fun because actually dealing with, with young people is always good fun. Uh, and I was asked to give a, a talk at uh, a certain event and I was given seven minutes and by some quirk, uh, and it was probably a complete fluke but I, I think I spoke for about six minutes and 57 seconds um, and that the chap sort of looked over the top of his glasses and said you know that was amazing it was it was interesting it was thought-provoking and what's more it was three seconds under you know your allotted time uh, so he just wondered whether I had ever thought about becoming what in those days was called a lay reader it's now called a locally a locally licensed minister so you're you're licensed to a particular church to to lead services and to speak in them um and i did train for that and i was uh 
a lay reader for about 20 odd years uh, until one fateful day then uh, I was chatting to my wife and she asked me what on earth are you going to do when you re retire because you're always so busy uh, and I think I said something like oh I'll probably just do a bit more down at the church um, and she said well why don't you do it properly which I thought was a bit rude at first because it kind of implied that I hadn't been doing it properly before but what she meant was why don't you think about ordination and actually you know having the the whole dog collar and, and and all that not that I'm a great one for dog collars normally but uh, because I think it it can be a barrier but at the same time what I have found is that it opens an enormous amount of doors um, because it gives you that sort of position of of authority um, and the opportunity to be there so anyway I went off and did my uh, three years training part-time um, and what is it now four years ago I became a vicar and I'm in a I'm the associate vicar in a, a local village church here it's it's developed but what I have found with God is that if you if you make yourself firstly vulnerable and secondly available it's amazing uh, what he will do uh, or what God will do with you and how uh, he'll use you in a way that you never anticipated but actually you know as I would say, his plans are better for my life than my own. So I'm very open to that. Uh, so it's been, you know, that's a really exciting part of um, of my life, although it does rather fill up the, the weekends uh, and one or two evenings in the week when, of course, I'm working anyway. So it, it's a bit of a stretch at the moment, but things will change after I retire. Mm, definitely. I find that so interesting. And do you think that, as you mentioned there, the role has made you a more vulnerable and available person? Do you think it's brought out those elements of your personality more and then you've been able to translate them into life as a manager at Night Frank? I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think that those two roles now complement each other and feed into one another? Yes, I do. And I, I, golly, I suppose you'd have to ask other people that question not not myself because it is a it is a it's a really difficult balance and there is what I hope anyway is a creative tension there because yes I, I do want to be completely fair with people I do want to be open I do want to be honest uh, and I want to be transparent and I, I I think I brought a transparency and an honesty to the country business that wasn't there before. But at the same time, of course, it is a business and the business is there to make a profit. And so you still have to take those difficult decisions, you know, and sometimes that is ultimately it could be making a redundancy. It could be closing an office. It could be dismissing someone and you still have to make those decisions. But at that point, I would, I'd like to think, uh, and certainly my intention is to do it in a way which is still dignified and bringing respect to the person that you're speaking to, because very often it, it is a, a circumstance to which they have fallen prey. It's not necessarily their own um, doing which has put them in that in that position, and you have to be honest but equally if sometimes and I have had it where people you know even I've employed um, haven't actually fulfilled what we wanted you have to be honest with them I'd go back to a sort of square peg square hole round peg round hole and, and if you don't fit it's actually better for both parties that you admit it 
you put it on the table, you say what it is, so that both of you can reach that point of closure, agree to part, and then uh, find out actually what is best for you. So yes, I, I do think actually being a vicar does give me a different approach. I have a, a deeper, I believe, a deeper understanding and empathy with people than some, which can put me at conflict with some colleagues um, because I, I personally believe there is more to life than just profit. So we end every podcast with a quick fire round to get your brain going again and to find out a little bit more about you. And the first question of which is London or country? Obviously country. I love London. I, th I love the buzz, but it's got to be the country for me. Classic or contemporary? Oh, you see, now that's really hard because I love classic. I love period buildings. And of course, every age has is a period. So I love period. But for me, I also love contemporary. I love things which are really slick, really fresh. So a, a blend of both, I'm afraid, on that one. Country manor or village cottage? Well, each has its place, um, actually. And it's got to be manageable. I'd... Yeah, I, I've got to justify what I have. Uh, I do find that difficult. I live in a lovely house, but I make use of it. Um, at the point when I can no longer maintain it or use it, I will move to a smaller house in order to justify where I live because other people should be living in a house of this size. So um, I think ultimately, actually, I'd probably be a country cottage. Cool or email? Mixture of both. I mean, as a professional person, I love putting things in email because that way I have a I have a trail behind me by which I can I can justify what I've done. Uh, but at the end of the day, you get much more out of people by speaking to them. So I'd err towards the call and certainly the country business is a call business. Office or working from home? Well, I would have said um, six months ago, probably I I really long for the opportunity to work from home but having worked from home so much actually I think as I said in a different answer I, I like a bit of both I like being in the office but I like being outside so again probably a blend but more sort of 60% office 40% outside. Swimming pool or tennis courts? Definitely for me uh, swimming pool. I uh, love tennis but I don't play it enough uh, but swimming uh, is is good for me. I love keeping fit. Um, so yeah, definitely swimming pool for me. Walk or run? Run. I I, I run a lot. So uh, yeah, definitely running for me. And finally, possibly the trickiest question: sales or consultancy? <laughs> I thought you might ask me that one. Um, I, I'm well. The consultants will just have to close their ears for a moment because actually, I have found sales to be for me personally much more invigorating much more exciting so I'm afraid I push the sales button <laughs> I'm sure the consultants will let you off on this occasion and so we wrap up every podcast with one final question which is what does connecting people and property perfectly mean to you to me it's about service and it has to be about service um we've got that new um uh, strap line in a partners in property uh, and that is exactly right we should have come up with that a long time ago actually because in any decision in property 
it, it's always, your heart is always in your mouth. Am I doing the right thing at the right time in the right way? And actually what we as advisors uh, can give it is that reassurance that this is right for you. We understand you. We know this is the right thing for you. You're doing it in the right way. It's just the right time. And if we can make that process as seamless and as easy as possible, then the angst and the stress that comes from moving home in particular, but it, even in you know, writing reports, professional reports, if we can make that process as easy as possible, give the best possible service so that people are reassured that they're doing the right thing, we have brought a lot of contentment to a lot of people. So that has to be the way forward. David, thank you so much. I've loved this episode. Becky, you're a star. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of At Home With. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you shared this episode on social media, and please check out the show notes for more information. I'll be back next Wednesday with another exciting episode.